in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. We owe them a debt we can never repay. All we can do is remember them and what they did and why they had to be brave for us. seen that video now three or four times and uh, still amazing how emotional that is um, you know it's, it's incredible to think about the sacrifice uh, people that we don't even know have made for us um, for us to have freedom for us to be able to do this to sit here in a nice air-conditioned building on a beautiful Sunday morning, um, not having anybody pointing guns at us, not having bombs going off around us, nobody holding us in our homes, uh, being able to be free to come here. And we talk about the ultimate sacrifice. We, we know what happened down in Uvalde, uh, Texas, and the two teachers and 19 students who were gunned down senselessly and the mess that's down there now between the police and the politics and, and all that come with that and um, you may have heard that one of the teacher's husbands had a fatal heart attack after hearing the news and so you have four um, four kids that have lost their parents in a matter, matter of hours and <clears throat> so we wanted to take some time this morning at our campuses and just um spend some time in prayer for that situation as, as well as just as a reminder to ourselves and thanking the Lord uh, for the freedom that we have. So let's go ahead and um, let me pray and you join me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for um, this morning and the opportunity that we have, we take every year as a nation to remember those who have fought in our battles, who have fought for um, our freedom. Obviously, Lord, we're not a perfect nation. No nation is. But we have the freedom, and you've honored that freedom, and you've used this nation. Um, Lord, thank you for those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you for those teachers who were protecting their students. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would <clears throat> comfort those families. <clears throat> The, the relatives, the friends, that you would um, allow for there to be some wise decisions um, that come out of this 
as it pertains to our schools and the safety in our schools. Um, but Lord, we're also so very thankful <clears throat> for um, Jesus Christ, the one who had paid the ultimate sacrifice and not just died physically, but took upon himself the, the wrath of God in the sense of our spiritual, our judgment, our sin, so that we would not just have freedom in this world, but we have freedom for eternity. So Lord, thank you. And as we bring this message this morning, Lord, it's a kind of a tough message. It's uh, um, I'm hoping and praying that it's encouraging. And, um, but Lord, I know it may be also be convicting. And so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would do his good work of working in our hearts and our minds. And that we would leave here to, ready to honor you. We pray things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you guys, uh, some of you have met Chase the one we keep in the cage, as he put it. Um, <clears throat> and we let him out from time to time. We do feed him when he's in there. Um, but uh, he's, uh, if you don't know this, that he is in the National Guard Reserve. He's an Army medic. And um, so his unit has been called up. We don't really know what that means. He doesn't know what that means just yet. But So he's doing an internship, <clears throat> um, checking to kind of see, hey, is ministry a thing for me? Is education... Um, is in education, so he's um, pursuing that as well, but he's kind of looking at it and saying, okay, is, is ministry maybe a place for me? So he's doing a three-month intern with us, and at the end of that, he'll um, leave and be deployed to wherever it is the National Guard <clears throat> sends him. So be praying for him and uh, get to know him. And uh, he did a pretty good job with the announcement. So, you know, we're going to put him up front a couple times and, you know, see what, uh, see what he's made of. So... Well, as we know, this, uh, <clears throat> this world is a world of pain and, and of suffering. Uh, we have obviously uh, seen that, know that, experienced that. Um, and yet, Jesus has given us the responsibility as his disciples nowadays um, to share the gospel, to help build his church in that sense, to be used by him to build his church, because ultimately, when it comes right down to it, he's the only one who can bring some understanding to pain and suffering, um, who can bring freedom from it, who can bring the comfort and um, use it in order to bring glory to God. It's only through him and a relationship with him that, that that can happen. And of course, and it's great that people have died for our nation to give us freedom as a nation in our daily lives, but when you take our lives compared to eternity, Jesus Christ is the one who made sure that we had freedom from hell. And, and so that's our job. That's what We who are Christians, that's why we get up every morning to bring that message to represent Christ to those who need him, who are in that pain and suffering our tendency oftentimes is to hide, to get inside these four walls once, maybe twice a week, but to not really interact, to sit and hear some good Christianese, hear some good music, walk out maybe feeling a little bit more encouraged, but we have a tendency to hide, and we don't want to be a church like that. Um, Jesus said go, and so we need to go. 
We need to bring the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the salvation that he offers. We need to bring it out of this building into our lives, into the lives of those who are hurting, who are in pain, who are in suffering. I just talked to somebody after the service who's told it. <laughs> they got a situation. Just God has landed something right in our hands. And they're going to do it. And they're just like, you know, high five, you know, fist bump. Jesus says this in John 13. So the new commandment I give to you that, that you love one another. He's talking to disciples, all right? So he's telling the disciples to love other disciples. That you love one another even as I have loved you. So he's the example. That you also love one another. By this, meaning our love for each other, all men, in other words, those who don't know, Christians of course, but those who don't know Christ, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we have this responsibility. We have a responsibility before God and Christ to be committed to each other in love, committed to love each other the way Jesus loved us. Just think about your life before Christ and the fact that he loved you and that he died on the cross for you. It's the key to us as a church being effective in reaching people for Christ. The way you and I love each other, the way you guys love each other, is the key to being effective in reaching those in your life who need Jesus Christ, to be a part of what Christ is doing in and through our church. And as the Lord allows, we're going to continue to grow, and we're going to see new people come into our church, and we're going to learn what it means to love them, and they're going to have to learn to know what it means to love us. And, and those of us who have been together a long time, who, you know, we start taking each other for granted, we're going to have to learn and relearn how to love each other. So we're using Memorial Day <clears throat> as a backdrop to answer our final question in our Ever Wonder Why series. And, and the question we want to answer today is, why should I, as a, a Christian, why should I, as a Christian, love other Christians? Now, you might be thinking, come on, Harold. I mean, really? We're going to cover something so obvious as that? Well, again, there's certain things that are obvious that are not practiced. And so we need to practice these things. I've been in church, I'm 55 years old. I know I don't look like it. I know I look like I'm 85. Um, but I've been in church for 55 years of my life, and I know that Christians hurt each other. Christians say things, do things. Christians are, are doing life that may not be what God wants for them. There are new believers who need other Christians to come alongside of them. There's a bunch of different ways we're going to talk about them today, about how we can demonstrate love in our church. This Christ-like love. So turn to John 15. We're going to just look at 12 through 17. It's page uh, 1079 if you're using the Bible there. And as you, Let me just give you the context of what's happening here. So this is what we call the upper room discourse. In other words, Jesus' last teaching, it starts in the upper room and it carries on into the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's his final teaching for the disciples. So as soon as he's done here, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on the cross, 
And that whole saga is going to happen. He's going to die on a cross for our sins. But before that, he wants to give them the last bit of information. Here it is, guys. Huddle up. This is what's happening. This is what's going to be going on. And so from John 13 through John 17 is what we call the upper room discourse. In John 13, Jesus talks about serving. He demonstrates serving by washing the disciples' feet. He predicts his betrayal. He, he commands several times in chapter 13, love one another. By the way, it's kind of a reoccurring thing through this. Jesus, uh, John 14 through 16, Jesus talks about the fact he's going to return. Don't freak out. I'll come back for you. Talks about the Holy Spirit coming and what the Holy Spirit's going to do and, and how he's going to operate in, in the lives of believers and what he's going to do to help us see people come to Christ as he convicts them of their need for salvation. And, and then John 17, it's just, you know, one of these days we just need to go through these verse or these chapters. John 17, it's, it's really the Lord's Prayer. We talk about the Lord's Prayer. Farther out in heaven, heaven hallowed be thy name, right? It's really, a, that's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus praying, not just for the disciples, but for all disciples of all time, you and me. Jesus is praying for us and praying for God's protection and, and for God to use us and for God to not only um, unite us, but have the same unity that he has with the Father. You know, wow, that's, that's incredible unity. These guys, they had a massive mission in front of them. They were going to be the ones that were going to be, the, the, they're called the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone, but these guys are the foundation. So he's going to use these guys and work through these guys to build his church, the initial foundation of his church. This is huge because, believe it or not, I know we sterilize Scripture, and I know we always want to make Scripture seem a little more um, childlike than maybe it is. We don't want to offend anybody with what's going on. But these guys were sinful human beings. Yes, they were saved. Yes, they had Holy Spirit in them, just like we do. They were still sinful. They still struggle. Paul talks about his struggle very openly. Can you imagine the potential for division with just within the 12 disciples, the apostles? Paul shows up, number 13, bad number. And he shows up and he's seeing people are coming to, to Christ, but there, and there is actually a little bit of something. If you look in Acts fourteen and fifteen, there was some issues there because they're like, "Hey, who are you? You're the one who's you were persecuting the church, and now you think you just come in here and start leading people to the Lord?" Yeah, Paul and Peter going at it. Peter was afraid to sit with Gentile Christians. His Jewishness was coming out, and so he, when he showed up, he, he was sitting with the Jewish believers, those who didn't want to sit with the Gentiles. And Paul had to confront them. Hey, Peter, you're, you're not doing what God wants you to do. This is not what Christ died on the cross for. You got Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Silas, and Paul and Barnabas that said there's a sharp... Um, division, a sharp argument that happened between those two because Paul didn't want to take Mark for some reason. And so it, it was such a thing that, the, that um, Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark and they went off and, and split their resources that way and they, they went out and shared the gospel and saw people come to Christ. We, we know later on in the Second Timothy 4, Paul says, hey, bring Mark. He's useful for the ministry for me. So there was some sort of restoration that took place, thank the Lord. And all of these 
Restoration took place. Love won out. People chose to sacrifice. And the mission that they were given continued on because it's all about the mission. Our church is all about the mission. It's all about seeing people come to Christ and then walking with them to help them grow in their relationship with Christ so they can go out and win more people for Christ and we will grow in our faith in that way. We have the same mission. We have the same responsibility. So what I want to do today is I want to break down 12 through 17. We're going to do a verse. I'm going to talk about the verse. And we're going to do a verse. We're going to talk about the verse. And then I want to talk about there's three main reasons or three main ways that sacrificial love that Jesus talks about here is seen in a church. Kind of the top three ways that this happens uh, in the church. And so join with me. Again, we're going to be in 12 through 17. So Jesus, again, halfway through this upper room discourse, they've actually moved out of the, um, uh, the upper room, and they're walking along, he's talking. And let me just also say this. I would love to have gone through entire chapter 15 with you this morning, but we don't have three hours. And so I'm just kind of, we're focusing on this, uh, this section. But man, you need to read 1 through 11 and 18 to the end, because it, it kind of gives you a better understanding. I'll refer to some of it on the way, but anyways... So Jesus says this, this is my commandment that you, disciples, love one another, other disciples, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man or no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. It was at the end of the video today, which doesn't always get used in context, but uh, I guess I was told by somebody that um, President Putin has used that verse to spur his military So it doesn't always get used in context. We want to bring it into context as to what Jesus was talking about here. And so in verses 12 through 13, the first thing we have to understand is this is a command. This is a command from Jesus Christ to us, his followers. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a, hey, if you like somebody, because that's phileo, that's kind of that emotional friend type of thing. It's not if they do something nice to you, then you do something nice for them. This isn't negotiable. Well, I see what you mean, but this is a command. Let me take a step over here. Uh, Again, I've been in church for 55 years of my life. And I've been a part of a lot of different churches who have done a lot of different things, who have said a lot of different things and done a lot of different things. And, and when I came back here and, and I was given the opportunity to be the pastor here, I, I told Kim and I told some other people, I am not going to let this church fail as much as I can at what God's called us to do. The mission is too important. So, it's a command. He says to love. This is the agape love. This is the agapeo, the verb. To love. And I get it. This is very Christianese. We love hearing about this on Sundays in the church. And, oh, the love of Christ. And our love of Christ 
you know, has, has, he's shown me and how much he's loved me and sacrificed for me. Right. And once we've accepted that, now it's love others, starting with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the exact same way. It means to have a warm regard or cherishing somebody, but it's always connected with Jesus, so therefore it's self-sacrificial regard, self-sacrificial cherishing of others. Jesus says it's laying down our lives. This is actually a Jewish figure of speech, which means to give up your life. Give it up. Willingly and voluntarily. Just like Jesus did when he went to the cross. Jesus said, I give myself up voluntarily. No one's telling me. No one's holding a gun to my head. I do this voluntarily. I'm going to love by giving my life up on the cross. We are expected to do the same thing. So it's not a feeling. It's not something we go like, well, yeah, I don't really, I feel. Like, no, just cut the feelings out. We live in a world full of feelings. Everything is emotional responses. Just look at Facebook. Look at the news. Talk to anybody. We may have emotion. The Bible says be angry, but don't sin. Because love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. Love is no matter what I'm feeling, no matter what I'm thinking, no matter what the other person did to me, no matter what I think about the other person, no matter... I'm going to do what they need so that they can grow in their walk with the Lord. Again, we'll talk a little bit more later about how that looks, actually. John 15 uh, 14 and 15 says, You disciples are my friends if you do what I command you. Which again is love one another. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. So how do we know we're friends? For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. And so here's the first answer. Why should we love others? Well, it's because that we, Jesus calls us friends. He sees us as his friends. Kind of unusual. He doesn't say this a whole lot. We don't hear this a whole lot elsewhere in Scripture. We, talk, we hear Paul and Peter talking about being slaves, so we have to have the attitude of a slave. But Jesus is saying, I'm calling you guys friends. Now, it doesn't ever say we can call him a friend. Interesting, but we won't go there. Um, that's just for you to research. But he says, you are my friends, because I've shared with you everything that's going on. We know God's plans. We know God's purposes. Christ has shared it with us. The Holy Spirit has given it to the apostles. We know. And so we are, we are his friends. And so I was doing some research on this because it, you know, I was kind of like, hmm, I don't quite get this. And I, and I found in a commentary some guy who brought in some historical information that I didn't know. Uh, so I want to share it with you, and we can, all be, we can all be smarter together. So it says, this phrase is lit up by a custom practice, that's English, sort of lit in the practice, you know. Anyways, uh, practice at the courts, both of the Roman emperors and the kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. You don't think that's... Important? You know, I mean, yeah, catch him before he gets up, you know? He talked to them, 
before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and the most intimate connection with him. That's what the disciples heard when Jesus said, you are my friends. They're like, wow, we are his most intimate companions. You and I are Jesus' friends. You and I are his closest companions. That's awesome. That's just, that kind of blows my mind that he would consider me that, me of all people. But then he says, if you do what I command. So they kind of go, well, what do you mean by if? Well, again, it's important to kind of know the language here. So um, it, it, this is a, uh, a Greek word that introduces a situation that if X is true, then Y will follow. So you can actually use since. He says, you are my friends. I know that you're my friends. I see that you're my friends since you do what I command you. Because you're doing what I ask, you're proving to me. He's not saying you're being saved by this. He's saying you're proving to me that we are friends by how you're living, by how you're loving. So there's an expectation on Jesus' part that those who have placed our faith in Christ and we are intimate friends of his, that we would, we're doing what he asks us to do or commands us to do. Let's continue on. It says this, uh, you disciples are my friends. Uh, go to the next one, sorry. You know, I'll both start with you disciples, so I didn't see any change. You disciples did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, draw people to Jesus for salvation. I'll talk more about that in a bit. And that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Wow, it's an awesome uh, promise. So this is answer two to the question. That is, why do we love each other? It's because Jesus chose us and appointed us to do that, to bear fruit, actually, from that. It says that he chose us. Eklegomai is the Greek word. So the eklegomai make up the ecclesia, the church. Those who are called. Those who are picked out of a crowd. Those who are chosen to be on a team for kickball. <laughs> that was in my head when I was thinking about this. Not quite the same. He calls us out of the world and makes us part of the called out ones. Makes us part of his church, part of his body, the body of Christ. Now, why did Jesus choose the twelve? Of all the millions of men in Israel, why did he choose these twelve men? And one who betrayed him? I don't know. I mean, why did he choose Abraham? Why did he choose David, King David? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? I don't know, but thank God that he did. We don't know why he does this, but we do, knew, do know in a sense why or what our purpose was. He says, because I've appointed you. I've assigned you a task or a function. I've set you apart for my purpose. Kind of has the same idea as holy in that sense. And what's our purpose? Our purpose is to bear fruit. Now, uh, verses 1 through 11, this is really kind of a key part of that, so you have to go back. But in, these, in this... Um, teaching what Jesus is doing, bearing fruit has this idea of 
living a life that represents Christ that draws people to him for salvation. So you bear fruit. You bear fruit in your own life of looking more and more like Jesus Christ and then the fruit of people seeing that and then they turning their life over to Christ. So that's why you've been chosen. That's why I've been chosen and why he's appointed us to do. And our, our job is to bear fruit, to become more and more like Jesus Christ, to draw people to him for salvation. And then there's this huge promise that whatever you ask, you'll receive. But notice the context of it. The context is seeing people come to Christ. The, the context of this promise that God's going to answer our prayers and give us whatever I need is whatever I need for me to become more like Jesus and then draw people to Jesus Christ and share with them the gospel, that's what he's going to give me. And if you want answered prayer in your life, that's one way you need to be praying. Because then you'll see God answering prayers left and right. Too often our prayers are a little bit less focused on that. And then he finishes up in verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Now this is like the third or fourth time he's said this already in the last several chapters. He bookends it, his teaching. This is emphasis. This means something. You know, hello, wake up, Bueller, you know. So what does this kind of love look like in our church? We're going to talk about three main ways that agape love is seen in a church setting, is seen between Christians. For us to be effective in representing Christ and, and seeing people come to Christ. Because again, our love for each other makes that happen. It's part of the element of making that happen. Now two of these are going to be love that's in response to what I'm going to say is kind of a negative situation, maybe. And then the, the third one is uh, in response to what I'm kind of saying is, is a little bit more of a, a positive situation. All three are hard. Because there's a key word with this love, and that is sacrifice. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we don't like the word discipline, we don't like the word sacrifice necessarily, but all three of these are difficult. And, and before I move on, I just want to say this. One of the great things, one of the things I love about our church is that the first two I haven't seen a whole lot in our church. And the times I have, I, I've seen people do what they need to do, and it's been awesome. The third one, I've seen quite a bit. And both of it's awesome. But as I said before, Lord willing, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to be a church that God honors by seeing people come to Christ. And So these things we need to know and we need to respond to. So I'm going to try to work through these things rather quickly. So the first one, and how love is expressed, is by expressing biblical truth. Now this is typically uh, happens in a church under two circumstances. One is that there's some known public sin that a Christian is involved in. Um, or uh, a Christian is believing and possibly teaching some incorrect doctrine, something that's not uh, scripturally uh, right. And so, and, it's, and again, this is hard because in this world, it, it, the world would say, don't judge me. You can't judge me. And Christians often use this. I've had people tell me this. Hey, Harold, as a Christian, telling me, you can't judge me. 
Well, the Bible says I can't judge non-Christians. That's God's job. We Christ, Non-Christians do what non-Christians do because that's what non-Christians do, and they don't know any better. And Lord willing, they'll come to Christ and begin to understand and see their lives change. But Christians, the idea there is that we do know better. And so then we need to. There's, there's a bunch of elders have certain requirements, deacons and deaconesses have certain requirements, and there's a lot of things that we need to look at somebody and go, I'm sorry, this is not right. You need to deal with it need to take care of this situation. See, Christ-like love knows that if a Christian stays in that situation, whichever one we're talking about, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt other people around them. They're going to represent Christ wrong. They're going to get, people are going to see God incorrectly. And so we need, to do, we need to do what's best for them, no matter what it might cost us. And it's going to cost us something. This is what we call sacrifice. It could cost us them being angry with us. It costs us them not wanting to be around us anymore. We could receive insults. We could receive gossip. We have to work through our own hurt feelings. It's costly. It's worth it. The New Testament letters, that's what they're all about. I was going to go pick and choose, but I'm going to say, wait, I can't do that. Every one of Paul's letters, Peter's, James, John's, all their letters are all about the fact there are Christians who are not doing life God's way and need to be addressed, or they're not believing God correctly, his doctrines, his teachings, and so it needs to be corrected. And so for the sake of Christ's reputation, for the reputation of our church as we seek to follow Christ correctly, for their own spiritual well-being, we need to gently, humbly, patiently speak God's truth into their life. Paul talks about this in Galatians 1. He says, Brother, if anyone is caught in any trespass or sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so you too will not be tempted. So anyone who is spiritual... Anyone who's spiritual is a Christian. Anybody who's placed their faith in Christ, God the Holy Spirit is living in them. They are now spiritual. And so we all, as Christians, have a responsibility to gently, not combative, not with arrogance, not angrily, not looking down on them, not sinning in our response to them, share with them what God's Word says, and then we leave it there. We let God do what God wants to do, in the life of that person. The next demonstration is probably the most difficult, and that is to, to love, um, responding in love to someone who has hurt us or uh, sinned against us or somebody that we care about. Um, so let me just say, those who are Christians in the room, um, how many of you guys have sinned? Okay, if you don't raise your hand, as a Christian, if you don't raise your hand, you just sinned because you lied. Okay, so just don't raise your hand now. Let's just cut that out. All right. How many of us as Christians have hurt somebody else with what we've said or done? Okay. Do you know why that is? Because we're just sinners saved by grace. We're sinners. We make mistakes. We say things wrong. We live wrong at times. We, we know what our responsibility is, and we shirk our responsibility. It's, so, most of the time, sometimes it's intentional. I get it. You know. But most of the time, it's just intentional. It's, 
It's somebody saying or doing something that they were in the heat of the moment, that they were thinking about something else, they had their mind. I was talking with somebody else, somebody was showing me a text, and, and you know, I just as I'm reading it and thinking about the situation, the, the person was probably at work, and this person is trying to get some details worked out with the guys at work, you know, so I, was, I, I could see why he sent an angry face, and, you know, we're, sometimes we're just so self-focused, we're just doing what we're doing, and we're passionate about something, we do what we do, or most of the time it's not malicious, most of the time it's not wanting to be hurtful, oftentimes in church it's someone doing ministry, it, but then it's just like, man, we when that happens, I get it. We get emotional. I believe me. I had a circumstance this week for me personally, and I, I first reacted emotionally. But man, you got to back that down. You got to learn to respond in love. I, I had somebody um, tell me something in the past, and I, I so I understood what they told me to be this, and so I made a decision based on that for this, and then found out this week that no, I must have misunderstood what they had said. And so then I had to go, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You know, it happens all the time. I misheard something. I thought for sure they said what they said. I... Jesus gives us clear teaching on this. And I, again, I got I to get flying here. Matthew 18 says, If your brother or sister or fellow Christian sins, go and show him his fault in private. Not to everyone else, but to the person in private. In fact, if this all works out, nobody should know. If he listens to you, you have one your brother or your sister. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. And again, these are people who are not previously involved, not those who you've shared your story with, and then you take them with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Go to the next one. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so we, Jesus says, listen, if somebody has hurt you, you go to that person privately. You and them, and nobody else needs to know. Nobody else needs to be involved. You and them, privately. Let them know that you've been hurt. Talk it out. Seek restoration. Now, the hurt person does this gently and humbly, remember? Galatians 6.1, right? I think it's up on the screen. You don't do this emotionally. You don't do this defensively. You don't sin in your response to them. It doesn't give you the right to, to do that. The worst thing you can do is go tell other people about it because now you have a ripple effect. And people don't quite understand everything. And so then they're starting to ask questions and they're asking other people if they know it. And let me just tell you this if it does happen in our church, if you come to me or any of the ministry leaders, they already know. They're going to tell you, go talk to the person. Now, he says to 
Next, if the privately thing doesn't work, then take one or two people with you. Let me just encourage you, then take one of the spiritual leaders of our church with you. Take me. Take one of our ministry team leaders with you. Because of what the next step is. But our responsibility would be to make sure that everybody's on the same page here. Because sometimes a person is hurt, hasn't quite got all the information. And so that maybe takes away some of the hurt. Or sometimes a person who hurt didn't realize how much they did hurt. But knowing each other's situation helps in that and can bring about restoration. So sometimes somebody who's not involved, is not emotionally involved, can help with that. And the reason why I say a spiritual leader is because the next step is bring them before the church. Now, this is church discipline. And in my 55 years of church ministry, I've seen it happen once. So it doesn't happen a whole lot in churches. It's usually a person who says they're a Christian and they're going to be unrepentant and they're going to be, you know, they don't care and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this whole thing of, um, you know, uh, withholding fellowship from the person in order to restore them. Again, Scripture has a bunch bunch of things to say about both Jesus and Paul. But we, we won't get to that. Because we're going to do the first step first. See, why do we do this? Is because our mission, what Christ has called us to do, is too important. Eternity for those in our lives who need Jesus Christ is on the line. And so we got something going on between us that needs to be dealt with. Because our love for each other impacts how other people see Jesus. And as far as I can do it, I'm going to make sure we do it as a church. One and two. And especially number three. This one is hard, not because it can't be done. It's hard because many Christians choose not to do this. But it's the greatest one to do. It's the most fun one to do, if you want to put it, put it that way. And that is to love by walking with other Christians. And here... New believers would be, you know, certainly somebody that we need to look at. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Having so fond an affection for you, talking about these believers, these new believers in Thessalonica, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, we didn't tell them just the good news, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul showed up there, Paul and his buddies showed up there, they were beaten and bloodied. Paul had almost died prior to showing up there. They literally had to nurse Paul back to health before Paul could tell them the gospel. Paul didn't stop. He just continued to give them the gospel. And then when he got his strength, he was telling them about himself, and he was giving his life to them. He was walking with these new believers. He was answering their questions. He was challenging them. He was saying, hey, here's where your life needs to be adjusted. I mean, First Thessalonians 4, Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you're having sex outside of marriage, you need to correct that. If you're thinking wrong, you need to correct that. If you're living wrong, you need to correct that. But he's walking with them and he's encouraging them. This is costly. It costs us time and energy, finances, sleep. Because we'll wake up in the middle of the night praying for these people. It costs us. We'll be discouraged. We'll be sad. We'll not, we won't know what to do at times. They'll ghost us. We're texting and calling. And then we send Stan over to sit outside their house in their bushes. <laughs> That's a spiritual gift. I don't know. He's done it. Don't, don't, make me suck, don't make me send him over to your house. 
but it's always worth it. Man, if you haven't sat with somebody and seen them grow, you're missing out. It's worth it. You who are doing it, you know the challenge. You know the incredible joy that comes with it. Look what Jesus says in his prayer. So, but now I come to you. He's talking to God the Father, of course. Excuse me, of course. And he says, in these things I speak in the world. So everything he said, including 13 through 16, so that they, disciples, Christians, may have my joy made full in themselves. You and I can have the joy of Christ in our lives. Man, are you discouraged? Are you depressed? Are you looking at Christianity going, yeah, I'm not really sure this is all it's cracked up to be? Then you're doing it wrong. You're not doing this, certainly, because Jesus made a promise here. You, Christian, walk with another Christian, sacrificially love by being with them and helping them, and you'll have my joy. Not your joy, his It's a necessary ingredient for us to grow spiritually. We can't miss that point. To just sit here on Sunday mornings, yeah, it is boring. I wouldn't want to be sitting here on Sunday mornings if that's all this was. I get paid to be here. I wouldn't want to. No, it's the walking with new believers and believers who want to do it God's way. That's where the joy is. That's where the vitality is. It's worth sacrificing everything. So what are the takeaways? And they're kind of connected to these, obviously. So the first takeaway is, you know a Christian who needs to hear biblical truth to correct a lifestyle choice or a belief, a wrong belief. You have a responsibility to sit with that person and first understand what Scripture says. Don't go there thinking you know. Go there knowing you know with God's Word and sit with them gently, lovingly, patiently, and then leave it there. Let God be the one who convicts them. If God wants to convict them at that point, it's God's. They're his child, right? Do you need to go to someone who has hurt you and let them know that? Have that conversation. I'd recommend doing it in person. Do not text. Do not email. And really, if all possible, unless you live out of state, don't call. Grab coffee. Get in public. That way when the knives come out, no, just kidding. Get with that person. And listen, if in your response to their sin, you've sinned, you need to ask for forgiveness. Because, yeah, they may have hurt you, may have done something wrong, but you had no right to hurt them back or to respond back in an inappropriate way. Why? Because the mission matters. And then the last one, Are you expressing Christ-like love by walking with a younger believer who needs your encouragement? I know we have some in our church who are doing that, and it's awesome. It's awesome to watch. I get to do it, but are you doing it? 
And if you're like, well, I'd like to, come talk to me. I'll give you somebody. I, I love being able to hand this off to people. I love watching the spiritual growth in people who are doing this on both sides. Because a person who's walking with the new believers, they're growing like you would not believe. It's funny. I've had people come to me. This, I shouldn't be happy about this, but they'll come to me like, oh, my word, Harold, how do you do this? <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, okay, well, there you go. At least you understand what I've been doing. No, it's awesome. It's good stuff. Let's go ahead and stand. And let's just uh, close in prayer. And let's commit to show those in our lives who need Christ that we're friends of Christ by loving other Christians as he's called us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this morning and thank you for the patience of, of our church family this morning as we've gone through this material. Lord, I'm so thankful for the fact that you are a good God, a loving God, who's patient with us, who forgives us. Lord, help us to be patient and loving for each other and forgiving of each other. And for the sake of the mission, for, for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, for eternity. Lord, thank you for our church family. Thank you for each one who calls Grace Point their church family. And I pray you'd bless each one and we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great rest of the Memorial Day weekend and make sure you take time as a family to, to remember those who fought for us.